0: So, um, I want to share with you this uh, thing that happens in my life. A couple times a month, I spend an hour, sometimes two hours, on the phone discussing some of the things that we're going to be looking at tonight. And on my end of the phone is, work with me, me, yeah, I'm on my end of the phone. And uh, I would say, you know, I would describe myself as a person who loves Jesus. I seek to live my life in alignment with the scriptures. And I put my whole faith in Jesus as the only way for me to know God and be in relationship with him. On the other end of the phone is a committed Catholic man who studies the scriptures deeply too. I believe he loves Jesus and he seeks to give his life uh, to Christ and be in alignment with the scriptures. And he puts his faith in Jesus as the only way for him to know God and be in relationship with him. So that happens a time or two a month. Now, here's full disclosure. The man on the other end of my call is my oldest son. Ben converted to Catholicism just after college, and he now teaches spiritual formation, kind of what I do here, in a Catholic church in New Hampshire where he is on staff. Yes, my son Ben works in and for the Catholic church. You should be at our house at Christmas time. The least of our challenges at Christmas time is whether we're going to go to the seven o'clock Christmas Eve service here or to the midnight mass. So we just go to all of it. So don't come to my house on a Christmas Eve because we will not be there. We will be wandering the city going to different places. In all seriousness, I think. That we both humbly respect each other's points of view and I believe we learn from each other. So please know tonight as we go into this that I identify with those of you who are in families made up of both Protestants and Catholics. The whole purpose of this Reformation Fire series is to know and understand our history and to know the beliefs that are vital to our Christian faith. That is the purpose. So, let's kind of figure out where we're at in this series. Well, the center of gravity shifted 500 years ago, and it has continued to shift. But think about it. In 1517, religious and national identity were linked strongly together, more than we can even imagine it. The church and the state were tied together. In that world, the notion of religious pluralism was largely unthinkable. There was one church. But when that pluralism eventually came about, it was frightening. The impact of the Reformation was not just religious in nature. Remember that it instigated a social and political revolution that spread across Europe and later to all parts of the globe. In the context of the Reformation in 1517 and in the couple hundred years to follow, words were used to raise concerns, engender emotions, and mobilize individuals for action. And in the midst of those competing worldviews, rhetorical conventions reflected the severe realities of the day. It was all about conquering and even demeaning one's opponents. There were no holes barred. And I think we somehow imagine, I think we can somehow imagine this kind of environment. Can't we just try to imagine what it would be like? No holes barred, conquering each other's opponents, demeaning each other's opponents. Let's just try to think if we can come up with something that might make us understand that. Thankfully, however, That day has faded. Instead of quarrelsome attacks, I believe we can now disagree with charity. Instead of drowning or impaling one another, across Catholic-Protestant divides, we can now enjoy a cup of coffee together, pray for one another's families, and cherish, cherish, cherish each other as friends and even family. The Reformation had far-reaching impact. Not only in the formation of what is now known as Protestantism, but within the Roman Catholic Church itself. There had been, as we have seen, obvious corruption and false teaching in the medieval church. And changes were made in the years following 1517. Modern-day Catholics would not hold to Or defend the abuses of the church of 500 years ago. And I think we'd all agree that that is a good thing. The challenge today, however, is that we once again live in a somewhat similar environment as 1517. But rather than divisions within the church, today there is contention and division along political lines. What I believe this has done is make it nearly impossible to discuss, critique, and challenge each other without it seeming like an attack. Get what I'm saying? And I want to put forth a theory today. We can and must teach well within our churches and dialogue humbly with our Catholic Or Protestant friends, for the sake of certainly unity, but more importantly, for the sake of truth, which is knowable, John 8, 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So my hope is that as I share tonight, it will be received in the same spirit in which I intend it, as a seeker of truth. I'm going to do my best to accurately represent what most modern-day Catholics would say they believe. And remember, I'm doing that as a non-Catholic, okay? So hang with me, okay? As we begin, it's interesting when you contrast two statements that Jesus made. One, he made in his final time with his disciples as they gathered in the upper room before his death. And one, was at the beginning of his earthly ministry while calling his disciples. So, let's look at these two verses, these very different statements from Jesus. One is found in John 17, 22 through 33. I think this is the more famous of the statements. We're going to begin actually in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, but that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. A call to oneness to peace to unity at the beginning of his ministry Jesus says this in Matthew 10 34 through 36 do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth see why this is the the less known I have come to bring I have not come to bring peace but a sword for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, that's just, that just happens right on that one. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. How in the world can both of these be true? How could Jesus at the beginning of his ministry say, I haven't come to give peace, I've come with a sword. But at the end of his ministry, he says, I pray that there will be unity, that there will be peace be peace and that my children will be one. Simply this. Jesus came to bring peace and unity. But peace and unity built on anything except the truth is not true peace. Teaching that is built on Scripture and Scripture alone will always be in conflict and opposition to any teaching that is not built on that foundation. This is what must happen even within Christ Church, no matter what its denominational name. Let me say here that while we while there are differences and disagreements with the Catholic Church, I, we could do a whole message on disagreements with Protestant churches. <laughs> those that would call themselves that. Okay, so, but because this is about the Reformation, that's why we're focused this way. Make sense? Okay. It's okay. It really is okay to speak truth when the goal of that speaking is to bring peace and unity of Christ's children, right? If everybody's just a ra- running around just thinking whatever they want to think, you don't really have peace. You don't really have unity. So it's okay to try to achieve that through speaking truth. See, family disagreements will take place even in spiritual families. Anybody know what I'm talking about? There are disagreements, right? Who's the most spiritual family here? Let's pick one. No, we wouldn't do that. I'll bet there are disagreements. Well, those disagreements are going to take take place in spiritual families just like physical ones, but it's still family. And one day, and I know we all look forward to this, total and final unity and peace will be with us. We will have it when we live forever in Christ's presence. Until then, there is going, there are going to be some family tussles along the way. So, where would let's start here? Where would evangelical Protestant doctrine be in at least general agreement with Catholic doctrine? Now, <laughs> needless to say, we can't look at every instance where this happens. So, we're going to look at, consider just a few. So, on what do we agree? Well, let's. Talk about a few. Creation and sin. Catholics and Protestants agree on the doctrine of the Trinity and that all three persons of the Godhead were involved in creation. There would be strong agreement that the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. They are alike in every way in terms of their divine attributes and glory. You see, there's a difference there if we were comparing our belief with you know, uh, Hinduism. Okay? Where we wouldn't believe in one God, we wouldn't believe in the Trinity. See, while God the Father took the primary role in creation, He spoke the universe and everything that contains it into his, in existence. The Son, it is agreed, is the agent. It was through Him, according to Colossians one thirteen, that the creation took place, and the Holy Spirit was and is the preparer and perfecter of that creation as he works in our lives. Both believe and teach that there are devastating results because of Adam and Eve's sin. The consequences of their sins were not confined only to them. Sin spread. It spread universally, and every person who comes into the world is impacted by that sin. While many points of differences separate us, both Catholics and Evangelicals agree that what is called original sin is transmitted to everyone. On what else do we agree? Well, I believe we agree on God's divine initiative in salvation. Catholics and Evangelicals would also agree that from all eternity... The triune God purposed to provide redemption for the people he would one day create and permit to fall. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20 tells us that Christ tells us that Christ, as the sacrificial lamb, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And at the right time, in the right place, the enactment of that plan began to unfold. And as it says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Aren't you glad God did that? And aren't you glad we're all getting that part right? (laughs) 2 Timothy 1.9 says that this holy calling... That of coming to God for salvation, that holy calling, was not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. So, we see that the plan for, the offer to us, and the application of that salvation is all from God. Now, as Protestants, we may be surprised to learn that Catholic theology denies any role for human initiative and merit at the outset of salvation. Rather, its beginning depends solely on the grace of God, and we would agree. It is stated this way in the Catholic Catechism. No one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification. God took the initiative in salvation. What else? Well, we would agree on the saving work of Christ. Both evangelicals and Catholics also agree on the saving work of Christ through his crucifixion. Acts 2.23 teaches us that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Both contend that Christ's death achieved redemption. Paying the purchase price for helpless people caught in the bondage of sin. It was also a picture at the cross of what is called propitiation that it's the satisfying of the furious wrath of God against sin both churches would agree a third image agreed on is that of what's called expiation e x p i a t i o n i've become a spelling scholar over the last few weeks expiation meaning that the liability to suffer punishment because of sin and guilt is removed Our liability is removed. And finally, we would both say that the cross brought reconciliation and thus removed the dividing wall between holy God and sinful people and restored the two parties to friendship. In a sentence, both we and Catholics would believe that the sufferings, the crucifixion, and the atoning death of Christ accomplished salvation for sinful people with me so far one more agreement the work of the Holy Spirit both Catholics and evangelicals would agree that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the God has had has been at work since before creation through today to point men and women to Christ for salvation and in addition has been praying for believers the Holy Spirit illuminates scripture to us gives spiritual gifts to his children and guides us in righteousness. He works to bring unity in the church and establishes its leaders. Well, while there are points of disagreement, clearly there are many points in common, and we could go on with several others. So, we're connected on some really important issues of faith, correct? But there are some key differences that I want to make sure we understand. And we're going to look at only two critical doctrinal areas that are at issue. Where do we disagree? The first one, spiritual authority. Spiritual authority. The best way to summarize the Catholic understanding of authority is by recognizing The interconnection of Christ and his church. Now we're all going to have to put our thinking caps on, okay? So follow me really, really carefully. This is the belief that the incarnated presence of Jesus is expressed in and through his body, the church. Okay? The incarnated presence. That means Jesus himself. Catholic theologian Richard John Newhouse has put it this way. For the Catholic, faith in Christ and faith in the church are one act of faith. Let me say it again. For the Catholic, faith in Christ and faith in the church are one act of faith. The Catholic catechism itself says, Christ and his church thus together make up the whole Christ What this means is that there is an ongoing bond that makes the church a single subject with Christ. It is called a continuing incarnation. Pope uh, Benedict XVI explained it this way. The church is described as the incarnation of the Son continuing until the end of time. Okay? Make sense? I thought tonight, I thought... Okay, after last week, nobody wants me to quote Luther or Calvin again, so tonight I'm quoting Catholic theologians and popes, okay? So, just be a little different, all right? Now, here's what's going on. This belief of a Christ-Church interconnection has obvious implications. This is the reason why the Catholic Church would describe and understands itself to be the only valid and true church while protestant assemblies like ours are considered to be ecclesial communities rather than actual churches it is why rome claims to be the determiner of the canon of scripture the canon meaning what books of the bible are regarded as authoritative now there's a whole sermon right there okay but that's essentially what the canon of scripture is is what books are regarded as authoritative Rome would claim it is the determiner of that canon. It is the basis of the Mass, this belief in this Christ-Church interconnection. It's the basis of the Mass in which bread and wine become the actual body and blood of Christ and are then treated as divine in what is called Eucharistic adoration. Now, let me pause and make a couple of comments about the Eucharist because we're not going to spend a lot of time here. In his book, The Theology of the Eucharist Table, Father Jeremy Driscoll concludes that the altar is where the center of theology takes place. In short, it is where all theological specialties listen deeply to each other. It is there, when we do do Eucharist, that all theological reflection is based Father Driscoll explains that it is precisely at the altar where the master themes that the Catholic theological tradition has developed through two millennium find their origin. It's important to know that while the elements of the Mass are venerated, it is the stated belief of the Catholic Church that it is Christ who is worshipped. I want to make sure we clarify this. okay? Yet... I find this to be a complicated argument given the Catholic Church belief that the elements actually become the body and blood of Christ present in the Eucharist. Okay, There's some problems there in my opinion. All right, enough about the Eucharist. If you want to know more about this, give me a couple hours and we'll go at it. So back to this connection of Christ and the church. It is why Catholicism... If, if, if the belief, here's the belief in a sentence, Christ and the church are the same, okay? It is why Catholicism mediates prayers and righteousness and merits. It is why evangelism for the Catholic church is at its core a matter of calling humanity home to mother church, which it regards as Christ in the world, Okay? A couple years ago we saw signs, right? Come home. Anybody see those? That's what that's where this came from. Evangelicals agree with Catholics that a vital union exists between Christ and his church, right? We agree that Christ is the eternal word who speaks from his church, resulting in a deeper experience of holiness and a witness to the world. But there is a nuanced But, very important difference. From the evangelical perspective, the Catholic concept of continuous incarnation, the idea that Christ's actual being, infallible revelation and authority subsist in one holy Catholic apostolic church, we would say is inconsistent with Scripture. Okay? So you understand this concept of a continuous incarnation? For instance... I would make the argument based, for the evangelical idea, based on the bodily ascension of Christ in the, the bodily ascension of Christ and the promise of the bodily return of Christ in Acts 1. Okay, you know where we're talking about? Acts 1, Christ bodily ascends, he leaves the earth and says, I will return in this same way. This conviction that scripture alone is the one body of divine revelation, and therefore the supreme authority. Thus, the statement we looked at last week, sola scriptura. Scripture was left with us because Christ bodily left the earth and will one day bodily return. Historian Alistair McGrath puts it this way, Jesus is the living word and thus the Bible is understood as having the authority of the risen Christ. Jesus stands at the heart of the Christian faith and so must the Bible. There is an intimate interconnection between the Bible and Christ evangelicals would say. It is meant by which it is the means by which Christ is displayed and proclaimed and manifested. Thus the Bible Not the church is the sole source of Christ's authority. Okay? Now, that was very complicated. Shake your head if you followed most of that. Okay? So, section in a sentence. The Catholic Church would say that Christ and the church are one. Okay? The church is... Not only the representative of Christ, but is Christ Himself. Evangelicals would say Christ is found in the scriptures. Okay? That if you want to find Jesus and see Jesus, you look into His Word that He left us to discover Him. Okay. Now that cleared up for some of you. Some of you, for the first time, are actually shaking your head yes. Okay, good. Remember that in 2 Timothy, we are taught the Word of God completes and equips us for every good work the word of god equips us so we seek to live out our salvation with explicit connection to the word and so we come to the second important difference that we'll consider now i've just picked two because these i think are the two main ones okay the second one is salvation how are we saved kind of critical right We've already looked at the areas of agreement on this topic, but there are some important differences. One fundamental disagreement concerns the reason why God ultimately accepts sinful people. Why does God accept sinful people? For Catholics, this acceptance is the culmination of a religious process. A faithful life nurtured by grace that is conveyed through the sacraments. In the Catholic Church, these include baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, or we would call it the Lord's Table, penance, the anointing of the sick, ordination, and matrimony. As a side note, for evangelicals, we recognize only two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Table. Some evangelicals would add a third sacrament of foot-washing. Based on the teaching in the Catholic Catholicism, it says this, and I quote, Justification involves the free forgiveness of sins and the recreation of the sinner through the infusion. Remember that work from last week? Okay, infusion of justifying grace, otherwise known as sanctifying grace. This infusion makes us God's truly just friends and adopted sons. God also causes justification work working through the sacraments of baptism and reconciliation. The basis for justification, the grounds on account of which God justifies, are the merits of Jesus Christ. Okay, some agreement and disagreement in that statement, right? So, here's the idea. In the course of growing, and I'd say we all want to grow as Christians, right? We all want to grow in our faith, Right? In the course of growing, the Catholic Church would say, one merits divine favor and by doing so eventually receives the divine declaration of acceptance. Which come after a time in purgatory, which is defined by the Catholic Catechism as, and I quote, state of final purification after death and before entrance into heaven for those who died in God's friendship, But we're only imperfectly purified a final cleansing of human imperfection before one is able to enter the joy of heaven. While the initial grace of salvation cannot be merited, remember we said that was a point of agreement, that is the unmerited favor of Christ, that initial grace, we would agree with that. Faithful people merit for themselves and with the help of saints and Mary for others, all the graces needed to obtain eternal life. There is, within the Catholic Church, a very deep connection to the saints as a help in obtaining a righteous standing before God. This connection is seen as an extension of the community of believers within the church. This idea is this, the idea is this, that much like we would ask a Christian friend to pray for us, I hope you do that in your small group. You ask others to pray for you. The saints can also be sought for counsel and guidance. This is also true when the soul is in purgatory because the prayers and the righteousness of the saints can be transferred to the one waiting that declaration, awaiting that declaration of righteousness that will allow them entrance into heaven. There's this very tight connection with the saints, okay? The key person, a hugely key person in this whole process, is Mary, the mother of Jesus. A key declaration of Catholic tradition is this. The most blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin, and remained free of every personal sin. Well, because of her immaculate conception and what is called her perpetual virginity, as well as her bodily assumption, the taking up of her body into heaven at the end of her earthly life, those were three key doctrines I put all in one sentence. We can talk about that later too. The teaching is that she joined herself with Jesus' suffering on the cross and holds a role as the mother and co-initiator of the church. So, Mary is therefore highly, or within the words of the catechism, super-venerated and seen as the co-advocate, the helper and mediator along with Jesus between God and man. Now, as evangelicals, we believe that fallen humanity is unable to secure the smallest measure of divine merit. I've tried. It doesn't work. Okay? Can't do it on our own. Even the most selfless examples of human behavior are unworthy of God's favor. And this would even include those, I believe, who died before and could be considered saints. I would say that this also includes Mary, since Scripture affirms in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Instead, divine acceptance is based on the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is imputed. Remember that word from last week? Imputed, transferred by legal decree. We receive Christ's righteousness. Our sin is imputed and transferred to Him. It's imputed to sinful people. In other words, because believers are in Christ... One of Paul, the Apostle Paul's favorite phrases for Christians, we are in Christ, we are clothed in His perfection, we are regarded by God as completely righteous. So, unlike the Catholic system in which the decisive verdict of God's uh, acceptance follows a lifetime of accumulating sacramental grace in which one accrues merit, Protestantism emphasizes... Emphasizes the decisive point when people believe the gospel. And at this moment of conversion, God accepts sinful people. Once converted, we would teach, the children of God set forth on a journey toward holiness called the process of sanctification. According to Colossians 1, 22-23, 20 through, through growth in personal holiness is authentication... Very important word, authentication, wow, of the reality. The authentication of one, the reality of one's faith, rather than part of the process toward faith. You See the difference? That our sanctification is working us to be more like Christ, not in order to be part of obtaining the grace of Christ. Maybe put simply, I would say this. Even, we, as evangelicals, we separate the ideas of justification and sanctification. Okay, We talked about this last week. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Okay, We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Catholics would mix the two, justification and sanctification, into one. The evangelical view insists that while justification is... Sh- in- Secured by faith alone, it is a faith that never remains alone because of ongoing sanctification by the transformational work of the Holy Spirit with God's children. It's all, okay, everybody together? Big breath. Okay. That makes sense? (coughs) So, section in a sentence maybe or two. Hard to put that all in one sentence. Okay, run on sentence. Well, Catholics would say, just like evangelicals would, we are saved by grace. Evangelicals would say that grace is not only an initial work, but a continuing work that saves us. And that we enter into a process called sanctification, that growing of our faith, that understanding of, our <coughs> of the reality of who we are in Christ in making us more like Jesus. Catholic theology teaches that, yes, there is grace at the moment of salvation, but then that grace must be built on through the sacraments, through our efforts in becoming more spiritual. So if you put both people beside each other, we're doing the same things. Okay, does that make sense? We're doing the same things, it's just for a different purpose. We're thinking two different things about it. Now... I want to bring this teaching as well as this entire series of messages to the point of looking inward, both as a church and as individuals. And up till now, for the last 30 minutes, (laughs) this has all been just content. You kind of understand that, right? This is content. What can we learn? I think there's some things we can learn. And these are just personal thoughts here. Now, these are my thoughts, as I say, not necessarily some statement of our leadership as a whole, but maybe they will cause us to think and grow. Here's what I think we can learn as evangelicals from from those in our families and friends who are Catholic. First, I'd say, is a reverence for and at the Lord's table. I would not agree with the idea of transubstantiation taught by the Catholic Church, in which the actual body and blood of Christ are physically present in the elements of the bread and wine. But I do think that every time we come to receive the elements in what is commonly called the Eucharist, because the actual meaning of that word is a time of gratefulness and thanksgiving, we should come seeing And sensing the amazing grace offered to us by a holy God. I think there is a lost reverence in our churches sometimes. I am inspired by the level of reverence that I feel when I have watched communion be taken in Catholic churches. May we not ever take lightly what is happening in the sacrament of the church. I do believe that that every believer in Christ should be invited to receive the elements whenever or wherever they are offered since they are a beautiful picture of the unifying work of Christ in our lives. The second thing I believe we can learn is a commitment to training our children. Now notice that these aren't necessarily things we just talked about. Nearly every Catholic child is taken through the catechism and through the process of training and blessing called confirmation. The training of children in Scripture is so important. Now, while we have no formal program here at New Life, I think we must be committed to training our children at home, as well as through our church in our Sunday Kids Life ministry, our Awana program, as well as our student ministry teaching times that we talked about earlier. In each of these ministries, children and teens are taught the Word of God and how to live its truth out in life. They memorize Scripture. They build relationships that encourage and challenge them to grow in and remain in their relationship with Jesus. I think that's important. And I think we should all be taking advantage of that. Also, I'd encourage each of us to take what Chris told us earlier and take the next 52 days and be part of the truth challenge and grow, go through it daily with our children. There is no better Bible training what it, than what happens in a home. What else can we learn? One more. I think we can learn this idea of being part of something bigger and older. Some of you have said to me that you did not know much of what we've taught over these last few weeks about the history of the church. Well, let me tell you, there is a lot more. I love the fact that the Catholic Church has a sense of bigness and world-wideness that can often be forgotten by evangelical churches. But we are a a, a part of a huge worldwide people. We need to remember that. We are not just a church at the intersection of Stigler and McCutcheon Roads. We have a history that is over 2,000 years old. And we need to know it. I think we all just want to be part of something bigger than us, right? And we are. But we kind of ignore it. So... I feel like a commercial guy tonight right now. I'd love to have you be part of this upcoming four-week class on church history. It's going to begin in just a couple weeks. Invest in knowing more about your big C church. So those are just three things I think we can learn. And there are others. And I learn new ones every week when I'm in that phone call. (laughs) What do we do now? What do we do? What do we do now? I think... First is be a person of the word. Read it, study it deeply, take classes, grow in your knowledge and understanding of it. These classes that are coming up this fall will help you. Ask others in your small group or ask a pastor or leader to help you learn and grow if you're unsure how. Be a person of the word. And I hope over the course of this last four weeks, you've thought, you've realized, I need to keep learning. I keep, need to keep learning the Word. Second, what do we learn? Know the gospel. Know the gospel. Be confident that you know what the gospel is and what it is not. So here's my challenge for you. Start memorizing 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. Pastor Steve quotes it all the time. So the next time he quotes it, he's not in here, the next time he quotes it, I want all of us to start saying it with him. Kind of freak him out. Here's what it is. He calls this, you know, the gospel in a sentence. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Know the gospel. Another thing I think we can do is grow in the gospel, grow in it. Let's grow. Let's not be content to stay where we are in our walk with Jesus. Remember that the Bible in 1 Corinthians 9.24 describes the Christian life as a race. Be committed to running it. And if you need help, let a leader know. A small group leader or a pastor, we can help you find a mentor. We can advise you of a class to take. This is what church community is all about. I love Ephesians 4, 12, and 13 because it reminds us that the church, this community of people who love Jesus, is for the building up of the body of Christ. That's what the church is to be about. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature adulthood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what it's all about. And then last, what else? What else? do we do now? I believe we respectfully dialogue. We respectfully dialogue. Share with your Catholic friends. First, know what you're talking about. Don't find out all your information on some wackadoodle blog. They're out there if you didn't know. Thought so I'd let you know. Know what you're talking about, but share. Do this in a humble and caring way. Commit to learning from each other. Share the stories of your walk with Christ. Let's respectfully dialogue. Now, let me bring this whole thing to a final close with a reality check that we need to understand and I know this will feel kind of like a Debbie Downer at the end, but I want to be clear. There are clear difficulties in uniting, seeking to unite Protestants and Catholics. In large part because of Catholicism's exclusive claims. The writers of the book, The Unfinished Reformation, put it this way. From our Protestant perspective, unless the Catholic Church undergoes radical reform according to the scripture the reformation will necessarily continue at the same time the catholic church must demand that protestants return to mother church and cede to papal authority that's problematic right these are deep deep divides While we pray fervently for the unity of Christ's church as he did, as long as these divides endure, so too must the Reformation. Let's pray. Father, uh, <laughs> I have to admit this has not been my favorite teaching to bring. God, it feels heavy. And yet, God, I believe you want us to know. You want us to know you. You want us to know you in the scriptures. You want us to know truth. God, I believe it's important to know where we differ with those we would probably call brothers and sisters. And we do call them that. So, God... Help us to take whatever you want for us as individuals out of this entire series. We stand on the shoulders of the reformers who stood for Scripture alone. In a relationship with Christ, through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And we are grateful. May we know what we believe and be confident in what we believe and be able to lovingly dialogue and share what we believe. We're now going to stand and praise you as your church, as the people of God.